the remainder of us will continue our focus on Simply Jesus, a, a series of messages we've been looking at in these weeks leading up to Easter. Now, throughout this series of messages, we've been zeroing in on the person of Jesus as he's described in the Bible, specifically in the first four books of the New Testament, commonly called the four Gospels. As we've examined these four portraits of Jesus, we've not looked at them uh, necessarily in the order that they're listed in the Bible, but in the order to help us see Jesus more clearly as we approach Easter. The first week, we looked at a guy named Matthew, who described Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew, more than any of the other gospel writers, uh, had, a, had uh, just a number of Old Testament references, looking at Old Testament prophets who foretold for centuries of Jesus' coming. Then the second week, we looked at John, and how that John, who some believe was the closest of the 12 apostles to Jesus, that John gave a very intimate portrait of Jesus as being the Son of God. Last week, Andrew did a great job describing Jesus from Luke's portrait of Jesus as a deliverer who came to save those who are lost. This weekend, we're going to examine most likely the earliest writer of the four, a guy named Mark. I believe his name was John Mark. Mark, who wrote the shortest and yet possibly the most sophisticated of the four Gospels, one that many have struggled to grasp some of the significance of his telling of the Jesus story. And he begins in a very abrupt powerful way in the declaration of his faith in the very title of the book. In Mark 1, verse 1, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Some of your translations, if you're reading from a different translation, may re read the gospel about Jesus or the gospel of Jesus Christ. Actually, both translations are correct. Since the word gospel literally means good news, that would be correct to say it either way. Here at Southwest, we're eager to share the good news of Jesus to all who will learn of him, trust him, and follow him. Next weekend, we have a special opportunity to share the good news of the resurrection. And we're going to share that all weekend long. In fact, we're going to start on Saturday morning. We're inviting children in the community into our building. And we're going to have a special Easter extravaganza. And uh, I just want you to picture about 13,000 uh, plastic Easter eggs up on this hill behind me. And uh, we're excited about that. And we hope that you'll come. We hope that you'll invite others to come and be a part of the Easter extravaganza as uh, we invite children in. And I want to tell you the truth is we are, I'm just as excited about what's going to happen before the Easter scramble. In fact, actually, if I'll be honest with you, more excited about that than the actual scramble because from 11 to 1230 inside our building here, we're going to have different stations 
And in like a vacation Bible school type approach, we're going to tell the story of Jesus and how he died and was resurrected to all these children that walk into our building. And if you uh, are looking for an opportunity to serve, we could use your help and just make that known either on the communication card or reach out to Tammy Stahl and, or just show up early next Saturday and let's uh, serve children. But will you join me in praying for good weather? Because right now the forecast says rain. And uh, it's just not too much fun to look for 13,000 Easter eggs in this room, okay? It's hard to hide them, tell you the truth. And so uh, let's pray that, uh, that it's a good weather, at least that, that morning, so that we can enjoy that. Now, throughout the weekend, also be making plans to attend one of our four Easter services uh, being offered next week. Now, please note that none of the times are the same as usual, okay? So if you show up, you know, at 11, uh, you're going to be early, which I guess that's not too bad, but, uh, but the truth of, and maybe for those of you who struggle being on time, just tell yourself it's 11, okay? But it's actually 11.30, but we're going to have four. We're going to have one on Saturday at 4.30. We're going to have 8.30, 10 and 11.30, and we're stretching ourselves because we want to just make room for people that are maybe seeking God for the first time. Maybe at Easter season, they say, maybe we need to go find a church and learn about Jesus, and we hope they'll come and celebrate. Now, we hope you'll have a guest with you, and, and you've got a little flyer inside the bulletin that you can maybe hand to them and invite them to come to one of the services. And awfully, obviously, you want to try to come to the service that your guests can come. But if for some reason you don't have a guest, we want to encourage you to consider coming either Saturday at 4.30 or Sunday morning at 8.30 so that we can make as much room as possible during that 10 and 11.30 time that's probably going to be the most popular so that we can just allow more space for people to hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now back to Mark's gospel to his telling of the good news of Jesus. We see that Mark doesn't waste any time to letting us know who Jesus is. And yet in Mark's gospel, we'll see that these earliest followers of Jesus had trouble grasping who he really is. Jesus grew up and, and began his ministry in a region of Israel in the north around the Sea of Galilee. Most of his first followers were fishermen or those who lived or worked around the Sea of Galilee. And you can read all about that in the first eight chapters of Mark. Now, in that, we're introduced to Jesus, his miracles, his teachings. And it's in this first section that we're introduced to the hero of Galilee. And we'll see that for those who were first drawn to Jesus, they oftentimes were left asking themselves, who is this man? John Ortberg, in a book entitled, Who is This Man?, wrote these words. He is history's most familiar figure, yet he is the man no one knows. His impact on the world is immense and non-accidental. From the dark ages to post-modernity, he is the man who won't go away. And yet you can miss him in historical lists for many reasons. Maybe the most obvious being the way he lived his life. He did not loudly defend his movement in the spirit of a rising political or military leader. 
His life and teaching simply drew people to follow him. He made history by starting in a humble place in a spirit of love and acceptance and allowing each person space to respond. It's in that spirit that Mark describes Jesus in such a way that he invites the reader to come in into a space and to wrestle with our own personal response to this this hero, this Jesus of Nazareth who did all these miracles around the Sea of Galilee, the hero who walked on water, who had supernatural powers, as we'll see in our first story described in Mark chapter four, beginning in verse 35. It says, as evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water. Can you picture this scene in your mind, in your heart? I can in a very new and fresh way after my recent experience on a boat. You see, last weekend, Jane and I were in California attending our niece's wedding. And while in beautiful central California, we took in many of the sights. It was gorgeous. And we did some really fun things while we were there, uh, along with the pictures. Hopefully, you'll see a picture of us there on the shore. As you can see, it was just gorgeous. Pictures don't do justice of how beautiful it was. And while we were there, uh, we did fun things. One of them was we reserved a spot on a boat, and we went whale watching. Now, my beautiful wife was prepared, and she brought Dramamine for anyone who might have motion sickness, and, and, and we were told that it was a three-hour tour. Now, from a sitcom I used to watch as a kid, that should have given me a tip-off that maybe things weren't going to happen just as I had first expected. But as Jane was passing out Dramamine, I thought, yeah, I don't need it. In typical stubborn guy mode, I said to myself, Dramamine is for sissies. Well, you can probably guess what happened. Now, not immediately, because on the way out into the Pacific, we got to spot, we were able to spot some gray whales, and we, actually, we saw a gray whale with the, the baby calf, and it was, just, it was really cool, and uh, they just kind of float along the surface. In fact, I took a lot of pictures. A lot of them, you don't see anything but just water. Here's one with a seal, but this next one, you can actually see the spout. If you look closely there, there you go, the spout of the whale coming up out of the water. It was, it was amazing. And I was doing well during all that time. And there was other people getting a little queasy, but I thought, ah, I'm good. And then the captain found out that there was more whales further out into the Pacific. So he put it full throttle to go get them so we could make our three-hour tour. Well, when he did, I mean, we were hitting those waves. We were really moving And all of a sudden, people started asking Jane, first of all, are you doing okay? I said, why? She said, you're looking pretty white. (laughs) Then people I didn't even know said, are you doing okay? And I'm thinking, okay, that's not a good sign. 
And that just makes me even more conscious. And then Jane said, you've turned gray. Okay, now you don't want to hear that. And about that time, I felt like I was about ready to lose it. And I ended up horizontal, okay? The guy who was too tough to take Dramamine, I'm out for the count. And I'm crying out for Jesus for some help, okay? Well, that's exactly what happened back as we go back to our story. They are, they're in this storm. By the way, I just want to tell you the rest of the story. I, 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 I made it through the boat. I didn't lose my breakfast. I thought I was going to, but, but, but we, we went to shore and we went to this really cool aquarium, Monterey Aquarium, and, and, and we saw the sun. We went into this one room, there were black lights so you could see the different colors of the, of the fish, and there was this, this sea of fish, uh, school of fish just swirling. And when I did, when I started watching the swirling fish, guess what happened? I went right back to the boat. And so I ended up back on a bench, horizontal, and Jane said, I need to take you back to the hotel. So guess the sissy ended up back at the hotel while the rest of the family took in the sights there along the coast of Monterey. But don't feel too sorry for me because that timing was just perfect because I landed back in the hotel when the final four began. I'm not saying I planned it, but it worked out okay. But needless to say, I'm going to take Dramamine the next time we're on a boat. And I have great respect for anyone who can be unfazed by the rocking of a boat on water. They're hero to me. Well, see, that was the case for Jesus. In Mark 4, verse 38, Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat. He's unfazed. With his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the wave, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. And he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They ask each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. I would have loved to have been there, wouldn't you? Even with my past experience on the boat, I would have still loved to have been there to see Jesus say, silent, be still. And to see those wild waves just immediately go calm, that would have been an awesome sight to take in to take in the power of Jesus. This is one of multiple boat incidents Mark tells as he holds up Jesus as truly a hero, the one who came to save us and to deliver us from our fears and from the storms of life. Yet we can be like these first disciples and that we can find ourselves in the midst of a storm and we can doubt in the midst of that storm that Jesus cares for us and that he will make a difference in our life. I think what we need to hear from Jesus is, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, we're not guaranteed that we're gonna be rescued from every storm of life. But I do believe that if we will get our, our gaze fixed on Jesus and keep our focus on him, 
that we will find a calm and a peace that's really not of this world when we go through the different storms of life. Have you learned to put your trust in Jesus? Now, following this and a number of other miracles recorded in the first eight chapters of Mark in and around the Sea of Galilee, finally Jesus asked his first followers at the end of this section in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, he turns to them and says, who do you say I am? Well, Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, as the New Living Translation reads. Now, this, is, this marks a real transition point in Mark's gospel. Because from up to this point, Jesus has been up in the north, up around the Sea of Galilee, and literally from this point on, Jesus and the disciples are headed toward Jerusalem. From this point on, Jesus is beginning to prepare them of what lies ahead in Jerusalem. And he describes these first followers who'd come to trust him, that he was the Messiah, that he was a hero that they had been looking for, that he came not as maybe they had expected, but he came as a suffering Messiah. So as we see this journey to Jerusalem and see his suffering described and predicted by him, we're, we're left with a question to ask ourselves, why did he need to suffer? On their journey to Jerusalem, not once, not twice, but three times, Jesus predicted what was going to happen after he arrived in Jerusalem. You see, Palm Sunday is the celebration of his entrance into Jerusalem. But he predicted to those first disciples what was going to happen once he got there. In Mark 8, verse 31, we read the first of these three predictions He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. That's extremely descriptive of what happened to Jesus once he entered Jerusalem. Now, what was their response? Let's keep reading in verse 32. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Wow, what's happened here? Just a few verses earlier in verse 29, Peter's the one that stands up and says, you're the Messiah, you're our hero, you're the one that we have put our trust in, we are going to follow you. But I think once Jesus started describing what kind of hero he was, that he was one that was going to suffer on their behalf, I think Peter's backpedaling. And I think Peter's thinking, wait a minute, I didn't sign up to follow a suffering hero. I followed up to sign a victorious hero, someone who'd go from victory to victory, who'd just perform miracle after miracle. And now you're talking about suffering and dying. Jesus, you got it wrong. And then Jesus responds in in the strongest way imaginable. And he calls Peter out. He, he He calls him what? He calls him... Satan. 
Why? Why was he so strong? Possibly. There's a lot of theories on this, but possibly. One theory to consider is possibly the evil one, Satan himself, was at work through Peter trying to tempt Jesus to take a shortcut to glory instead of the way of the cross. Maybe you've been tempted at times to take a shortcut, to look for the easier, softer way instead of the way that's truly mapped out for you. I think that's part of what's going on here. I also think Peter's still looking at things from a human lens, and he's not considering God's will in the matter. It's so easy to do that, isn't it? To go through life saying, this is what I want. This is what I hope will happen. Instead of having that heart of surrender saying, what does God want? What is God's will for my life? In the very next chapter, we read the second of three predictions by Jesus. And let's read it in Mark 9, verse 31. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Here we see the disciples respond differently. You know, they've learned, right? They still don't understand what he's talking about. But they said, okay, last time Peter tried to talk him out of it, and that didn't go too well. So they just, we're going to be silent. And what's interesting, though, if you keep reading, immediately following this second prediction by Jesus, the 12 followers of Jesus are caught arguing among themselves who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, they're trying to rank each other from 1 to 12. Who's the closest to Jesus? Where do we stand? They're still thinking that Jesus is this Messiah, this hero who's going to sweep into Jerusalem, kick the Romans out, and he's going to establish a glorious new earthly kingdom. And they're trying to figure out who's going to head up the army, who's going to be the secretary of state, who's going to be the secretary of treasure. Well, I think Judas already had that one sewed up, but they're trying to figure this out. You see, they still are struggling with their human ambitions, their impure motives, They're so big that it completely blinded them to what God was really trying to accomplish and what Jesus was setting out to do and what God was preparing for them. Sometimes we too can be blinded by our human ambitions and our impure motives. And we can miss out what God really wants to do in our life. Our first Example, we saw how they needed to surrender to God's will. But second, we see that we are called to surrender our ambitions and our motives to God. And to see how God wants to be at work. Finally, in Mark 10, we see the last of the three predictions of what will take place in Jerusalem. And this one, he gets very descriptive, very graphic. In verse 32, They were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Can you picture that? The disciples were filled with awe, and the people falling behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. 
They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Here Jesus gets so graphic about the cruel treatment and the suffering that he's going to endure after they enter Jerusalem. And yet each time, if you go back and read those, Jesus points out that that this is not the end of the story, that, that I eventually will rise from the dead. This is the good news of the resurrection. This is the good news that we'll celebrate next weekend in a very significant way. But we want to make sure this weekend we just reflect on the suffering that happened before the glory. Surely, surely after three times, Jesus explaining to these closest friends, to the apostles, to the first disciples, surely they're going to get it right. Well, no. Because shortly after, again, the third prediction, James and John pull Jesus aside, and in verse 35, teacher, we want you to do us a favor. And if you go on to read, they ask, Jesus, can we sit at your right and left hand? I mean, they don't, they're leaving the other 10 out. Jesus, will you make us vice Messiah, vice king and chief of staff? What do we see? They're still asking the question that we're so tempted to ask sometimes. What's in it for me? If I follow Jesus, what's in it for me? And Jesus sees the opportunity to explain to his first disciples and to us that he's bringing a whole new definition of leadership, a leadership that focuses not on the benefits, but instead the responsibilities. At the end of this section, we find this quote from Jesus that some scholars believe is the theme verse of all of Mark's gospel in Mark 10, verse 45, when Jesus says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to sit on an earthly throne, but he came instead to to kneel and to wash feet, to meet needs, and to eventually meet our greatest need by dying on the cross to meet a need that we can't provide for ourselves, and that's forgiveness. Now, in the process, Jesus redefines what leadership is all about. Jesus came to earth to bring a leadership that doesn't count how many people are serving you, but instead how many people you are serving. It's so easy to get this backwards. And think that the purpose of Jesus' church is to meet each of our needs. Instead of realizing that Jesus calls us to follow him and to become a servant like him. From time to time, I hear somebody saying, well, I'm going to leave my church because it's just no longer meeting my needs. Now, don't get me wrong. I want us at Southwest to meet people's needs, but... But the truth of it is, if somebody's been a part of the church for a while and they're starting to say that, maybe they've lost their focus of who we're following. 
One who came not to be served, but to serve. Maybe a better question to ask ourselves is, how can I serve in Jesus' church? How can I meet the needs of others? Because you see, we're following one who came to serve. This next weekend is an opportunity for us here at Southwest to really live out our faith and to be bold in our faith, inviting our friends, our neighbors, our families to come and worship and celebrate Easter. But for us to provide that service, for us to provide four different service opportunities for people to come in, we've got to get beyond the question, serve us, and we've got to get to the point of where we are serving others. How can you serve next weekend? Wouldn't it be great if a bunch of people, maybe you, said, you know, I'm going to worship one of the services and just soak up the message of the Easter message, and I'm going to sign up to serve in another one in children's ministry or in guest services or in the cafe or some other way to serve so that I can follow my Savior who came not to be served, but to serve. Will you embrace the heart of this suffering hero? You know, Tammy Stoll said, we've still got about 30 spots in children's ministry from the four services. Could you be one of those people to step up to meet the call to serve the children who'll come next weekend? I like what one pastor and author recently posted on social media. He said, following Jesus has a much greater impact on your life and the world than simply accepting Jesus. Are you willing to follow the one who came to serve? Now, the final section of Mark covers the last week of Jesus, beginning with a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Some have described Mark as a passion narrative with a very long introduction. That's pretty accurate. Because from Mark 11 to Mark 16, you hear the passion. Five, at least five, maybe six chapters of 16 deal with one week. And as we read this last week in Jerusalem, as we prepare for communion today, I think we are called by Mark as he writes his gospel to ask ourselves, how will we respond to this one who came and was willing to suffer? We'll look briefly at three responses to his suffering and death of Jesus. The first is a very obscure mention of an individual that's only mentioned in Mark's gospel. In Mark 14, verse 51, it says, one young man falling behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt. When the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. He's the original streaker, okay? But why? I mean, this is the only gospel that records this guy. It's weird, obscure. Why, why did Mark record it? Personally, I think this is Mark. I think this is John Mark. And as the author of the gospel, I believe he's inserted himself in the story. And he's confessing, I didn't get it. And when they came to arrest Jesus, I'm ashamed, but I ran. What's the message there? 
No matter what our past, no matter what our present, Jesus came for us. He came to be that ransom for our sin. He came to remove that shame and remove that guilt. Have you trusted him for that? Second, there's this amazing statement by Jesus while he's hanging on the cross in Mark 15, verse 33. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sakbachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Here I believe we see Jesus experiencing the greatest suffering of the cross. Now, don't get me wrong. It would have been painful to have nails driven in your hands and in your feet. In fact, there's a word in English we use to describe the the pain that came from dying on a cross. It's the word excruciating. That's what the word means. It was excruciating. But I believe the greatest pain that Jesus felt was what he suffered here when he was hanging on the cross and he's the ransom for each and every one of our sins. I believe he, he felt the burden of our sin and at that moment as he bore sin, I believe he became separate from his father and for the first time in all of eternity, he is experiencing alienation. He's not doubting God's presence. He's just saying, I don't. I'm not experiencing it right now. And I've never felt this before. I don't know about you, but that's impressive that Jesus would be willing to go through that for me and for you. Finally, following the excruciating pain, Jesus endured on the cross and actually dies. Mark records this in Mark 15, verse 38. And the curtain of the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. You know, Mark in his title in verse one describes Jesus as the son of God, but throughout the rest of the book, not one human being makes that proclamation until the cross. And then a most unlikely person, the Roman officer, maybe even the one who helped drive the nails, was so drawn to Jesus and his passion and his compassion. He says, truly this is the Son of God. How have you responded to the passion, the suffering of Christ? Are you going to be like John Mark initially and simply run from it? Or have you personalized that Jesus died for you and recognized that suffering was for you? Are you willing, regardless of your past, regardless of your present, are you willing to put your trust and faith totally in him, proclaiming him to be the Son of God? Let's respond to the suffering of Jesus this weekend. Think about that during this time of communion. Let's pray. Dear God, we, we're just amazed by your love and your plan. Jesus, we're just in awe that you knew exactly what was gonna happen to you on the cross. You knew exactly what was gonna happen to you when you walked into Jerusalem. And you were still willing to do it. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for dying for us. Help us not run from that, but help us embrace that love and that grace given to us through your sacrifice. It's in your name we pray. Amen.